Lord, we are so grateful for um, Sean Richmond and for his family. And Father, I pray healing over him right now. I pray peace over him right now. He would not be anxious, Lord, about not being here, about about missing a Sunday uh, with the congregation he loves so dearly and the church he loves so dearly, Lord. And so I just pray you'd grant him peace, and even though he's not feeling well or might be resting, he would feel um, a sense of your presence with him in the room and um, his local congregation standing with him uh, and interceding for him in the Spirit. Uh, Refresh him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brendan Hollingsworth is uh, coming back from vacation today, so he's also out. And, you know, John Prickett is on sabbatical. Christopher Greco, our normal worship leader, is at a marriage when uh, his son is getting married today. So this is like third string for, and actually fifth, fifth string preacher. The next level is just finding somebody on the street with a pulse and just... Can, can you read? Okay, just come and preach for us. We got, we got nothing. So anyway, I'm still, I'm very excited to share God's word with you. We're going to break from our Genesis series a little bit. <clears throat> um, Sean was going to talk about that today. We'll talk again, uh, this message, which um, just hope will, will speak to your hearts. Uh, there's a great historian. I don't know if he's alive anymore. But his name is Kenneth Scott Latourette, and he wrote this tome, this 1,500 page at least, two-volume tome on the history of Christianity, uh, back from the times of Jesus to the present day, in two volumes. And he writes this. He says, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. So, who is he? Who is Jesus? We talk about him all the time here. We proclaim his name. Who is he, really? I mean, has any other question evoked as much controversy and debate, emotion, and thought for as many millennia as this one? I mean, if you want to suck all the air out of a room, stand up in mixed company and ask the question, who is Jesus? Open up one of your next meetings at work with that question, who is Jesus? In the year 2014, alone, and in English alone, over 1,800 new books were published with Jesus in the title. Just in that year. So who is he? Jesus' own disciples ask the same question all the time. And in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, we find some of Jesus' closest friends asking, who is this? So turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark's the second book in the New Testament of your Bible. We're going to start in chapter 4. We'll read 35 through 41. It should be on the screen as well. So this this text today in Mark 4 picks up after Jesus has been teaching by the Sea of Galilee. 
and the day is about to draw to a close, and they're about to cross the lake. So listen carefully with me to what God's word says in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. That day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Literally, the text says here, the disciples fear a great fear, and they wonder out loud, who is this man? And our text today is going to answer that question for us. But before we get there, I want us to ask the question. I think it's fair. I mean, did this even really happen? I mean, I've lived in New England for about all my life, and I've been through my share of nor'easters, hurricanes, blizzards, bombogenesis, storm, arctic vortices, and all kinds of crazy stuff, thunder snow. And not once have I witnessed a person stand in the midst of such a storm and tell it to stop. And if I did, I'd think it was a joke or some expression of frustration or something like that. I certainly wouldn't expect the storm to listen to somebody. So when we read a text like this, if we're honest, if I'm honest with myself, I ask myself, did this really happen? I mean, is this an exaggeration or an embellishment? Is it a fabrication? Did it really happen? And I will suggest to you that there is absolutely nothing we see in this text suggesting we should not take it at face value. I mean, to begin with, all of the basic history is consistent with what we understand of this period in time. Uh, due, to, due to the geography of the area, sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee are fairly common. And these boats, which are typically between 20 and 30 feet long, uh, often place ballasts along the bottom of the boat. So this is probably the, the cushion upon which Jesus was sleeping. And the stern of the boat would have been the calmest place the most sheltered area of the boat during the storm, out of the way from the others up on the deck. So there doesn't really appear to be any detail here that sticks out as a fabrication. And the story doesn't read like it's a myth. I mean, there, there's no fantastic language here. Lightning doesn't shoot out of Jesus' hands. It's just very matter-of-fact. C.S. Lewis, before he was a Christian devoted a lifetime to the study of antiquated literature. 
And he came to the same conclusion. He said that as he read the Bible, he had become too experienced in literary criticism to take the Gospels as myths. They didn't have what he called the mythical taste to them. In verse 36, Mark mentions that there were other boats with them. In other words, there were other witnesses to this storm. So numerous others at the time could attest to the fact that a great storm came that night, but it was suddenly stilled. Uh, There's nothing described in the text that contradicts common knowledge at the time, nothing that others could not attest to. But maybe Jesus just got lucky, right? I mean, the weather was going to die down anyway, and it was just a coincidence. Well, if that's true, then Jesus is either a nut job right? Or he's a terrible deceiver. I mean, if he actually thinks his words could have some effect on the wind and the waves, but they really don't, I mean, he's crazy. It's tantamount to me standing outside right now and saying rain and expecting it to rain. But if he knows his words don't have any effect and he's just hoping for a coincidental stop in the storm, he's putting on a show. He's a deceiver, and especially because he rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. It makes him a fraud, a false teacher. And given the rest of what we know about Jesus from the Gospels, it's a hard sell to say that he's a deceiver. But what if Mark and the other disciples just made this whole thing up? What if it's just that they trumped up this story after the fact to fit their own agenda? Well, That doesn't really make a lot of sense because Mark has no motive for depicting Jesus in this way. I mean, a follower of Jesus during Mark's time could expect persecution, not power. Mark couldn't have been seeking power or prestige through Jesus. He could be excommunicated from the synagogue, persecuted by his own leaders and the Roman government, disowned by his family and friends. He had nothing to gain by following Jesus and everything to lose. Or just imagine the disciples. Hey, guys, I got a great idea. Let's lose everything we have and endure suffering and persecution from every stratum of society, gain nothing, and do it all for something that we don't believe, that we don't really think is true. And while we're at it, let's make ourselves look like faithless cowards in the stories that we make up. Right? Who, who would latch on to that idea? It doesn't make any sense. So we could go on and on and on and talk about manuscript evidence and all the rest, but in the end, there's just no escaping this text. We have to take Mark at his word and deal with this. So what's he saying? What's Mark saying? And I want to submit to you that the text shows us two things. There's a practical point and a theological point. And so let's zoom in here and look at Jesus' rebuke. In context, the disciples are panicking, right? They think they're goners. They think they're going to die. Don't you care if we drown in verse 38? And we can give them some grace, right? This is a terrifying situation to be in. And especially at the time, the sea was a, a terrifying thing. In both Jewish and pagan thinking alike, the sea is associated with a chaotic, dangerous, terrifying force. It's unpredictable. It's untamable, it's ferocious, it's undiscriminating. And you can actually see a lot of this kind of imagery in the Bible. 
And boats rarely ventured that far offshore. So if you got caught in a storm, you're in deep trouble. There's no life jackets, no coast guard, no radio, none of that. And very few people could swim. So in the midst of this, Jesus asks, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you reacting this way? The implication is that if they had faith, they would be acting differently. And this is the practical point. The degree of your faith determines your disposition. The degree of your faith determines your disposition. And we know this intuitively already. If I'm counting on a friend to take me to the airport, my faith in that friend is going to affect my disposition while I'm waiting. I mean, let's say the person is 10 minutes late, no phone call, no text, nothing, just 10 minutes late. How am I going to react? Well, if I have great faith in this person's reliability, they've taken me to the airport a million times, they've never forgotten, they've always made it, I'm probably not going to be very concerned. If I just met them, if I have little faith in them, if they're always dropping the ball, I'm going to get really nervous that they forgot. Why? Because the degree of my faith is determining my disposition. So here the disciples are, and they're freaking out. And Jesus calls them out on it because their disposition is determined by their faith. If they had lots of faith, they wouldn't be panicking. But since they're panicking, they must have very little And this is the practical point of the text. The degree of your faith determines your disposition. But there's another dynamic of faith that we really need to talk about to complete the picture because faith requires an object, right? You don't just have faith, right? You have faith in something. There's an object to your faith. In my illustration above, I have faith in my friend. And this is important because the value of your faith depends on the object of your faith. And the best illustration I've ever heard to drive this home is to think of two people standing on ice on a frozen lake. And one of them stands confident and secure that they're never going to fall through. They have all the faith in the world in that ice that it's going to hold them up. And the other person is on there just on the cusp of a panic attack. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. He hears a crack, he's freaking out, fearful that at any second they're going to fall through the ice. Now on one hand, we see again the degree of their faith determines their disposition, right? Lots of faith, confident, calm, little faith, panic, uncertainty. But what actually determines the outcome in this picture? It's the ice, right? The object of their faith, or lack of faith, is what determines the value of their faith. If the ice is thin, the faith-filled person is in no better position than the one with little faith. His faith is worthless, because the object of his faith is worthless. It's thin ice. You can believe in the thin ice all you want, but it's still not going to hold you up. But if the ice is thick, they're both okay. The value of their faith depends on the object of their faith. There's this lie out there in the world that says all that matters is believing in something. As long as I'm sincere about it, it doesn't matter what it is. Just believe, just have faith. 
But the world doesn't work that way. Nothing works that way. I mean, I can sincerely believe in my heart of hearts that I can fly. But like, you know, guess what? It's not going to matter if I jump out of a window, is it? I can sincerely believe that I can get right with God by being good enough, by having my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's not going to matter when I face him. So this is the practical point. The degree of your faith determines your disposition, and the value of that faith depends on the object of that faith. So let's look at the theological point here. And this is the point in the message where if there's one one thing to take away, this is it. This is why Mark put this in his gospel. This is the point of his text that's staring us straight in the face. The text is telling us who Jesus is. It's showing us. Verse 41 closes with that question, who is this? Almost as if the readers are left to answer the question for themselves. And so we're back to the question I asked at the beginning. Who is Jesus? And the text shows us that Jesus is God. Who alone but God is Lord over nature? In the Psalms, we see several examples of God being Lord over the sea. Psalm 65, 7, it is God who stilled the roaring sea. Psalm 89, verse 9, God rules over the surging sea. Psalm 106, 9, the psalmist remembers how God rebuked the sea. Psalm 107, 23 through 32, foreshadows our very text today as God stills a storm to a whisper. Who calms the storm in the book of Jonah? Who is Lord over the sea in the book of Job? Who parts the Red Sea in Exodus 13? Who creates the sea in Genesis? God alone does these things. And in Mark's account, we see Jesus saying and doing what God alone can say and do. Does he stand up and pray to God that the storm is stilled? Does he utter some magic incantation or scripture? Does he cook up a potion or toss some sacrifice into the sea? No, he just speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey. He actually uses the same words he uses when he casts out demons earlier in Mark's gospel. With the authority and confidence that only God can have, Jesus calms the storm. This is the theological point. Jesus is no mere man. He is very God of very God, the Son of God. But, lest we get carried away, he's still very much a man as well, is he not? And we find him sleeping in the boat, sleeping like humans do. He doesn't just teleport over to the other side of the lake. He takes a boat like everybody else. He occupies time and space. He can be touched and seen and heard. The text actually says they brought him into the boat just as he was. I mean, like highlights, just a normal guy. We're just bringing this guy onto the boat. And so this text, we see this this perfect picture of Jesus' divine and human nature side by side. He is the God-man. And look again at Jesus' rebuke in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You can almost hear him say, don't you know who I am? 
I told a paralytic that his sins were forgiven. And then I healed him and he walked away. I healed a man with a shriveled hand. I claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. Demons cry out, you are the son of God before I cast them out. I cleansed the leper by touching him. I mean, what happens in the Old Testament when you touch a leper, someone who's, who's unclean? You become unclean, right? Not Jesus. He touches and he cleans the unclean. Only God can do that. He's the source of cleansing and holiness. I am the Lord who makes you holy. How is this not clear to you? Don't you see who I am? Here, let me shut this storm up. Now do you see? Practical point, the degree of your faith determines your disposition, and the value of your faith depends on the object of your faith. Theological point, Jesus is God in the flesh. So put these two together, and you wind up with incredibly, incredibly good news. Why? Well, because as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our faith, the object of our faith, is a person. It's Jesus. It's this God-man. Our faith is not fundamentally in the teachings of Jesus. It's not fundamentally on a set of noble ethics. Our faith is not fundamentally in ourselves and our, our inner strength or our ability to better ourselves, our wisdom, our intellect the degree to which we can live up to some set of standards. If I just buckle down and live right, I can get right with God. Our faith is not fundamentally in the church. Our faith isn't even in our faith. Right? Oh, I think I have enough faith to make it to heaven. I have just enough. You know, I have 15 terps of faith and you need 14 to get in and I, I got it. I can make it. No. It's not our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith who saves us. What does Paul say? We're saved by God's grace through our faith. Faith is the vehicle, not the object. Our faith is placed squarely on the capable shoulders of a person, Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is almighty God. This is why Peter says our faith is of greater worth than gold. It's because our faith is in God himself. How can you do better? You're standing on ice that's 10 miles thick. God, Lord of all creation. God, always faithful, always loving, always just, never turning beyond comparison, higher than the highest mountain, deeper than the deepest sea. God, speaking the very universe into existence, surpassing all glory and excellence and power to whom every knee bows, every tongue confesses his lordship. Who will challenge him? Who can frustrate him? Who can defeat him? The one through whom the whole universe hangs together. What surprises him? What wisdom or knowledge does he lack? What has escaped his notice? Nothing. God, this God is for you with all the unassailable might and power that eludes the mightiest angels and causes the darkest demons to tremble, God is for you. Who can be against you? What can touch you? You're standing on ice 10 miles thick. You're standing on the person of Jesus Christ, God's own son. This is good news. 
because the value of our faith depends on the object of our faith. And there's power in that faith. It affects how we live because our faith governs our disposition. Go back to the ice analogy. As Christians, we're standing on this rock-solid, immovable ice, Jesus, God himself. And the degree of our faith will determine our disposition. So you can be a Christian with little faith. You're still safe on the ice, but you're just standing there. You're nervous. You're worried you'll fall through. Or if you have great faith, you walk around, go skating, go ice fishing, whatever. You'll have peace in your life. You'll do greater things on the ice than if you had little faith. It'll free you to love, to take risks. You're standing on the rock. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary uh, to China, says, All giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power and presence to be with them. And notice what this text today does doesn't say. It doesn't say Jesus is going to calm all the storms in your life. It doesn't say that. Just live as a Christian for a few weeks, and you'll see that this isn't the case. Can Jesus do this? Of course he can. He's God. We already established that, right? And sometimes he will. Will he always do that? Probably not. In fact, as a Christian, Jesus promises that you will endure hardships. There are trials that we will endure precisely because we are Christians. Trials that we wouldn't otherwise encounter were it not for our faith. What does our text show us? The degree of our faith is going to determine our disposition in those hardships. Our faith in him will be what gives us calm in and through the storms. The more faith you have in Jesus, the less the trials of the world will rock you. This doesn't mean you're going to be stoic or apathetic into your circumstances or smug or anything like that. It means you'll be steady because you'll know the object of your faith. You'll know that nothing befalls you that doesn't first filter through God's hands. You'll know that he is good, that he is for you. You won't need to understand and figure out everything as much because you trust him. When things don't go your way, you're not going to fall apart because your faith isn't in an outcome, it's in a person. He's got this. He's not surprised. He's for you. This hasn't escaped his notice. He lacks no power to do what he wills. He's good. Jesus gave up all the treasure and blessings of heaven for you, for us. Even while we were against him, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, now that we are his, will he keep you? If we call ourselves Christians, Jesus is the object of our faith, and the value of that faith is beyond compare because Jesus is Lord. And we can agree with the Apostle Paul when he writes in Romans 8.31, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Danger or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, anything in all creation? Nothing. So as we respond to God's word today, uh, let's do a faith check. All right? 
what, what rattles you? What, what can rob your peace? I can think of a long list for myself, things that like almost instantly rob my peace. When do you need to stifle a panic attack? Uh, what are your fears? Rejection, suffering, imprisonment, loss of provision, sickness, death, abandonment. What is the object of your faith? What are you counting on? Is it really in the Jesus we know in the Bible, or is it in something else? Are you, are you banking on your own strength or on his? And let's be very careful not to weaponize this truth. Now, those of you who know my story know for most of my adult life, I've struggled with anxiety and depression. And one of the spirals I would catch myself in is... Hey, Marcioni, like, what gives? You just preached this sermon. Like, don't you have any faith? What's your problem? You don't love Jesus enough. You don't have enough faith. That's why you're so rattled right now. What's wrong with you? Beat myself up with that. No, that's not, that's not God's heart in coming to us. It's picking up a scared child. Hey, hey, it's okay. I got you. I got this. It's all right. Relax. I tell my little girl, my kids all the time, you know, hey, it's all right. Daddy's here. It's all right. You got this. You're going to be okay, right? That's, that's God's heart on this. So let's not weaponize this message for ourselves or for others. Let's meditate on the object of our faith. He has no limit. And the better you know him, the more you'll trust him. Right? You have confidence in your friend picking you up at the airport because you know him. You have a relationship. He's come through for you before. right? And so in this weird, self-fulfilling way, you grow to trust God more by trusting God more. right? You trust him more. He's faithful. He shows you. You learn. You grow. And he shows yourself faithful and you have more faith next time. Let's pray. Let's, let's ask for more faith. Like in the gospel, help me in my unbelief. If something's rattling you, Lord, I, clearly I'm not trusting you enough. I, 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 help me. Give me more of you to trust you. So as we close and, and the band comes up, let's meditate that. And I want to read a hymn that I came across a long time ago that was written in 1787 by a man named George Keith. And it's called, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord. <clears throat> so listen with me to this as a poem. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said than to you God hath said, to you for refuge, to Jesus have fled. Here's Jesus speaking now. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. 
for I will be near thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through the fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, for revealing who you are. And I pray this morning, Lord, you would stir our faith. Help us remember the object of our faith. It's you, Lord God. It's you, Jesus. We trust you with our lives, with our troubles, with our joys, our happiness, our future, our eternity, with everything. We trust you. And Lord, if there are those among us right now who have never made that step to trust you with their very lives, with their their soul, Father, stir them to release that into your hands. To trust you to have faith in God's own Son who loves them. We bless your name and praise you. Ask for your spirit now to move among us and help us respond to the great truth of who you are, Lord Jesus.